Blog Talk Radio. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! You've heard about it. You've read about it. You've talked about it. And now you've found it. This is Alan Smith's Ask the Trucker Live on Blog Talk Radio, the largest radio social network in the world. With your hosts, Alan and Donna Smith, focusing on driver health, careers, regulations, and the important issues facing the industry. It's time to shut down that big rig, sit back, and come join the conversation. Ask the Trucker Live begins right now. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Trucker Live. Our show tonight is the FMCSA Health Updates for CDL Drivers. And I'm Donna Smith, host of the Thursday evening health uh, segments of Ask the Trucker Live. Um, of course, we still have our regular trucking shows on Saturday evenings um, with Alan and I, but these shows are a welcome addition to our regularly scheduled shows. The, the health shows are, are really taking off uh, quite well. Um, tonight we have as our guest uh, Elaine Papp, founder of the healthandsafetyworks.net. And uh, Elaine is somewhat of a regular lately on the show as she has um, so much information in the area of health and regulations. As many of you know, Elaine is the health and safety advisor for North American Trucking Alerts. And for the last 30 years, Elaine's dedication and passion has, um, uh, in the area of safety and health for the general industry employees and CMV drivers uh, included helping them reach optimum health through their wellness programs. Uh, Elaine is a board-certified occupational health nurse with over 35 years' experience in occupational and transportation health. Uh, she's worked for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, as we know as OSHA, and uh, the FMCSA, uh, World Health Organization, International Council of Nursing, um, as well as private industry and just a host of other care institutions. Elaine has a, a very broad picture of the health care in America, from doctor's offices to intensive care units, hospitals, clinics, charitable organizations, home care, and the formation of health uh, policy and regulations. So you can see we're always very excited to have <laughs> Elaine on the show. Um, tonight's show will include the updates as many of the topics that affect uh, CDL driving careers. Uh, we'll be discussing the possibility um, of VA doctors being given the authority to perform CDL health physicals uh, for U.S. Uh, veterans who meet the criteria for VA health care benefits. Uh, and the the controversy is uh, without having to be part of the National Registry of the Certified Medical Examiners. So, uh, that's a topic of, uh, like I said, quite a lot of controversy. We'll also be reviewing the rules for insulin-dependent diabetics and the progress on the um, NPRM regarding doing away with the insulin exemption for CDL drivers. And I know, I mean, we get calls all the time 
uh, about insulin and and the CDL and how to go for the exemption and all like that. So this is a a very important uh, topic and update uh, for those people. Uh, FMCSA is proposing to permit drivers with stable, well-controlled insulin-treated diabetes uh, mellitus to be qualified to operate commercial motor vehicles. And I don't know if any of you remember, but we had a, a big show on it not too long ago with Dr. Rosari and Anna Lane Papp, and we'll try to post that replay also for that show. And finally, what's happening with sleep apnea? Uh, what should we ex- be expecting with that? There was supposed to be um, uh, a, a notice for a rulemaking on that. But anyway, we'll we'll talk about that also uh, on the show. So be a part of the conversation and call in if you're listening on the Internet and you want to call in and have a question or a comment, just dial 347-826-9170. And, uh, you know, I'll click one on your keypad after you do so I can see your hand rise and I'll know you want to join in the conversation. So stay with us. We'll be right back after a short message from our sponsor. You're listening to Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith on Blog Talk Radio. Don't go anywhere. Alan and Donna will be right back. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here. Have you been driving a big rig for a while now and considering starting your own business as an owner-operator? Well, Lone Mountain Truck Leasing offers the best lease purchase plan in the industry. With a small down payment and monthly payments around $1,000 or less, you make the monthly payment, and when the final payment is made, they hand over the title. It really is that simple. There is no big balloon payment at the end, and secondly, the truck is yours, not a lease plan under one truck and company. So if becoming an owner-operator is your goal, do it the right way. Do it the best way. Contact Lone Mountain Truck Leasing on the web at LoneMountainTruck.com or give them a call toll-free at 866-512-5685. That's LoneMountainTruck.com. This is Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith. To be a part of the program, call in now at 347-826-9170. Skype users can call in by clicking on the Skype button on our show page. To be a sponsor of the show, email Donna at info at askthetrucker.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, okay. 
Elaine, can you Elaine, hear me? Elaine, 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 yes, Elaine, yes, yes, yes. There's a terrible echo going on here. Hi, Elaine, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I'm going to call you back, Donna. Well, everybody, I don't know if you can hear me. We're having some technical difficulties here. Um, There was some kind of echo, and I don't know if everybody else listening can hear it. I'm going to open up a line with a hand up, and I want to see if um, they were hearing it also. Hi, area code 630. Did you hear that echo? Yes, it's Bob Stanton, and sometimes when talking to Elaine, if she's using a speakerphone, you can have some issues. So that might be what the problem might be. Okay, thanks, Bob, because I thought it was our – connection here with uh blog talk i appreciate you calling yeah raising your hand uh to let me know that now i don't see her she came back on and dropped off so i'm sure she'll be calling back in but tonight's uh tonight's show should uh be a good one we're going to do an update on that that veterans expanding the trucking opportunities um i think you were on the show last time uh also well, the, when we the spoke. Ve- Let me open up Elaine's line. There you go. Thank you. Hey, Elaine. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I had a horrible feedback. Uh, I know. I I thought it was our connection here, but Bob was kind enough to raise his hand to let me know that sometimes if you're on speakerphone, that might do that. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I'm here. Okay, great. Awesome. We're so glad to have you, too. Thank Um, you. Yeah. It's always it's always a pleasure. You're just like a uh, an encyclopedia of information for us here. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, I, I guess we can just dive right in here on this um, the on October ninth, two fifteen. Congressman Rob Woodall of Georgia introduced this bill, HR thirty seven thirty nine, which is the Veterans Expanding Trucking Opportunities. And uh, if passed, I guess this bill would exempt uh, veteran affairs health care providers from the National Registry uh, regulation and would yes. allow VA yes. health care providers to provide physical uh, exams who, for those uh, VA who, who qualify for health care benefits. So mm-hmm. I know you were um, opposed to it and wrote in and everything can you give us an update or should we review it first for all those listening who might not really know what this bill uh would do and and kind of go over some of the um objections to it well you can uh i i can tell you that um this just as you said congressman woodall of georgia introduced the bill that said it was it's the title of the bill is called the expanded uh, veterans expanded trucking opportunities act mm-hmm. and it's not very long it the the text of the bill is not very long and what it just says is that um mm-hmm. people at the VA don't have to um go through the national registry to do a physical a veteran can have a physical done by a VA doctor who is not on the national registry 
and I actually met with the VA um, before I retired from FMCSA about the National Registry. I think probably it was around October, November of 2014, and they were talking about the fact that it, you know, they they have clinics all over the United States. They don't know which of their veterans that come to those clinics are drivers. They don't know how many drivers are in the area of that particular clinic. So they don't know how many of their professionals, nurses, practitioners, PAs, and doctors, should be certified on the National Mm. Registry. So they might say, well, we'll get one guy certified, and then that one person might end up seeing tons of drivers, and or they may get 10 people certified in what they think is a large clinic area, and there are no drivers in that area. Right, so they were right. really hesitant to do it. That's number one. And the second thing that they told me uh, was that it's expensive for them to uh, get to take their medical providers away from doing work for the VA while they go and get training and sit for a test. And they would have to pay for that. The VA would have to pay for it as well. And so they're they're pretty inundated with patients. They have a backlog of um, being able to see everybody that needs care. And so they said what they would like to do with it is the same thing that they do with others. Um, several years ago when there was a backlog, a bill was passed in Congress saying that the VA has the authority to refer patients to a provider in the community if, say, the the veteran doesn't live near a clinic, so it's not easy for him to get to the VA clinic, or, say, um, the type of care that's needed by the driver is not offered at that particular clinic. So for a whole lot of different kinds of reasons, the VA was authorized to send a driver to a provider in their local area and be reimbursed for that. So the VA would pay for it, but the driver would be a medical, you know, a, a medical person in their community or a specialist. <clears throat> so they said that that would be the way that they wanted to handle this mm-hmm. and just do it the sort of the same way. Now, the there is some eligibility criteria that I am not familiar with because the Veterans Administration and their eligibility criteria are pretty complex, but. Um, there are different benefits that different types of veterans have access to, and I don't know exactly. So if you're a veteran that is eligible to have a complete physical exam done by the VA, then you might be able to be referred. And that is something that I think they should do. Right. Because the National Registry of Certified Medical Examiners was established because we didn't know who were doing the exams. We had no idea how many people were doing the exams, where they were located, whether they knew anything about commercial driving, which is, of course, vastly different than driving an automobile. And so um, Congress actually mandated us, the agency, when I say us, I mean Federal Motor Carrier, that Congress mandated Federal Motor Carrier to establish a method 
of a training, testing, and being sure that the medical examiners that do bus and truck exams know what they're doing. And right. so we established the National Registry, and it took years and years and years to do it. So to exempt a whole bunch of folks because the veterans may not be able to afford it and so forth isn't the best option. The best option is to still require them to have a medical exam done by a National Registry um, practitioner, but to have the VA reimburse the driver and pay for the exam the way they do other exams. So um, that's one of the, that's in a nutshell, and the reason I say that is because I don't believe that primary care providers who don't do physical exams on truckers really understand the regulations, really know um, the commercial motor vehicle driving, and really know what they, they need to do. And then it's not fair. Um, it's not fair to other drivers who are required to go to a National Registry examiner to not have it be even up so that all the drivers have to see the same kind of trained medical examiners. So I don't know if that piece makes any sense the way I said it, but um, that's that's my take on it. And I did I did talk to folks over at FMCSA oh probably about three weeks ago now, and they said that they are working with the VA to see if they could resolve between the two agencies resolve this and not have to have this bill. So the bill is just sort of it it was. Um, put out there, but there's no action being taken on it yet. And the VA and the FMCSA are working together to try and resolve the problem. Well, you know what I don't understand? Um, Why did they feel there was even a need for a bill when they have this non-VA medical care program, like you mentioned, that... um, you know that if if something isn't offered by the VA, then you just go and if you're part of the um, people who are entitled to these uh, veterans' benefits, then you go get your your medical and then you get reimbursed. I mean, isn't that how it goes with other things? Or yeah, yeah. As far as I understand, I sent you a link to um, there's a uh, on the website of the VA. Under right. healthcare chief business office purchase care is what it's called non VA right right care I got program. that and, yeah and, so and, I'm not exactly sure of of all the nitty gritty about how it operates and I don't know why the congressman felt that um, he needed to do a bill to me it's likely but I don't know this this is just a wild guess it's likely that some driver went to him and said, I'm a veteran, I go to the health care um, clinic here for my care, it, it's free, I can't afford to go to a medical examiner, and um, my health care pr- practitioner knows me better than uh, some medical examiner I've never seen before and can make a better decision and so forth. And the congressman probably said, wow, that's just terrible, and maybe didn't even know about this um, this VA program. So right. I don't know. I don't know why he decided he needed to do that. 
I think it's important that somebody tell him about the program. <laughs> um, really? I did when I did. Uh, because especially it's one thing if there wasn't anything already on the books where um, these veterans, you know, can get reimbursed. That's part of their benefits. And right. they could just go along with the same system as all the other CDL drivers. Um, but since this is already on the books, this um, VA medical care reimbursement, and, and here, I mean, I could just read you the from the link that you had sent me. Uh, Non-VA medical care is care provided to eligible veterans outside of the VA when VA facilities are not feasibly available. And this would, uh, a medical, uh, certified medical examiner would be one of those uh, people who aren't available within the VA system, so it, it falls right in line with this. And the bill was right. just, they do I mean, have to I, have, the veteran does have to have an authorization for treatment in advance. They can't go to a medical examiner and then go back to the VA and say, I want you to pay for this. They have to go to the VA, get approval, and get it in advance, and then go to the medical examiner. But, okay. You know, but you know when your physical is due, so you go in advance to the VA clinic that you attend and say, I need to have this done. Do you have someone here who's on the National Registry? Because there are, there are clinics that do have, there are VA clinics that do have people on the National Registry that have taken training and testing, and there are lists on the National Registry in different parts of the country. There are some in Washington State and so forth. Um, but, you know, you just go and say, do you have somebody who's on the National Registry that I can get my exam done? And if not, I have to have it done by someone on the National Registry. Can you authorize me to go to one of the medical examiners in the community? And then you get the right. authorization and you go. Uh, well, the I other thing some... that I think – oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was uh, – go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. The The, the other thing that – I think is is a benefit of using the National Registry is that my understanding from everything I've been reading and hearing on the news, there's a real backlog at the VA right. for getting things done. And if you're just going in for a physical and don't have any kind of dire emergency or even a follow-up visit for a a medical condition that you've been in treatment for and so forth, you're likely to be put at the bottom of the list because it's not it's not considered urgent or at all, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm thinking you were easier to get an appointment with someone in the community than to get on a list and have to wait and wait and wait. And I think it's better for the VA, too, because then well, they can, their practitioners have time to see those people who are sick and need treatment and their time isn't taken by doing physical exam. And that was that was the next thing I was going to say. I mean, look at all the um, numbers. You know, they're always wait, dying to get in to see a doctor at the VA. Can you imagine? Um, of course, you know, on the other side of that coin is even um, if it was Granted, that's not to say that the the uh, the veteran CDL drivers couldn't go to a medical examiner. I mean, if their time was running close, that would be their their choice, right? 
I mean, they don't have yeah, to oh, go Yeah, oh, yeah, they can always see a medical examiner and pay for it themselves. Right. Um, I think the issue was that they had free medical care and they didn't want to have to pay for a physical exam. And the second issue I heard was that my primary care professional knows me better than a medical examiner who has, you know, not never seen me before. But that's everybody's uh, argument. I mean, that's what all the other drivers were saying also. So right, what different? Right. right. I mean, there's no difference yes. in that. Yeah, and actually, it's um, you've got pros and cons with it. You know, uh, if you go to a primary care professional who knows you, he may. I I've been able to go to doctors over the time, and they say to me, "Well, how many days off do you want?" You know, they they feel close to their patients. They try to do nice things for their patients and help their patients out, and and so forth, and um, I've seen medical examiners who have just sort of signed a form, not really done a physical exam on the person. Oh, you're in good health, blah, 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 and just signed, Mm -hmm. not knowing, um, you know, anything about the truck driving. So, And um, that was one of the reasons that they started the the National Registry, for that exact reason. Right. I mean, there were people who... Um, the the Mother's Day crash, I can't remember the year now, but was a big I- issue. There was a guy driving, um, they had a crash, and I think 20, 25 people died um, in the mm-hmm. bus that he was driving. And he had, you know, serious cardiac disease and had actually been to the emergency room six hours before he got on the bus to drive. And, you know, given all the stuff that they looked at and knew, he should have never had a medical certificate. So, wow. Yeah. Um, I am giving you some real cryptic uh, information about the Mother's Day crash. I used to know a lot more about it, but other things have gone into my brain and squeezed it out. <laughs> so I don't know, but it, you can find it on the Internet pretty easy. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, uh, another so I, thing. I would like oh, to I'm see sorry. What, yeah, what I would like to see is I would really like to see the VA and the FMCSA work together and get some type of an agreement where they can send the veterans to a medical examiner on the National Registry and the VA pay for it, and I think it will be a win-win for everybody. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, this I, you know what? The more I I dove into this, I mean, even from the the last show we spoke about it, um, it just seems like it would cause so much confusion, double standards, um, you know. And like we said, it would be different if there wasn't something already in place uh, for situations like this. But there is something, so. I have a feeling that um, H.R. 3739 um, may just kind of go by the wayside. I mean, I could be wrong, but I I think there's enough opposition uh, or negative um, things that could happen that I don't, I don't, I don't mean, I don't even know if it has any co-sponsors. I, you know, I I looked, let me see. I don't know. I didn't didn't look at it yet. I mean, I looked at it a long time ago, but I don't know whether it has co-sponsors. Here, here's the text. I'm looking at it now. Let me see if there's any co-sponsor. I don't see any co-sponsors. So, you know, it, it just might have been one of those things. And uh, 
But it's it's good that we let uh, the veterans know on this show that, look, there is a program already available to you. And actually, I think I have that link up here. I think I'll post it on the show page. I'll do that right now. Oh, I don't think I can on the switchboard. Yeah, I'm used to doing the shows with Alan running the switchboard. I'll have to do it later. <laughs> um but uh, anyway, yeah, no, it's already available to them. So, um, oh, what was the other thing I was going to ask you? Uh, another confusion, uh, the adverse impact, and you had mentioned this in your article about uh, the adverse impact on electronic transfer of medical certificates to the SDLAs. I mean, that was a big concern, too. I mean, if this went through, right. how would they do that, Right. I, I don't know. I don't think they could do that. I think they would have to um, give the driver a hard copy of his medical card, and then he would mm-hmm. probably have to take that card or, or she would have to take that card to the state driver's licensing agency to show them that they had a medical, that they were medically certified, sort of the way right. it's been happening. So that whole piece of trying to save everybody some time and energy um, by having it electronically transferred wouldn't wouldn't be possible. Right. And you had mentioned there are, that. By and... the way, I just looked it up. There are um, co-signatories uh, on the bill. Um, Mr. Okay, Wall, I must have missed it. Hold on. Let me get up to that page again. Um, tech there H-R3. are uh, Mr. Woodall, Mr. Walls, Mr. Ribble, Mr. Scott of Georgia. Mr. Massey, Ms. Brownlee of California, Mr. Westmoreland, Mr. Crawford, Mr. Denham, Mr. Hanna, Mr. Meadows, and Mr. Ferenthold. So they, those were his co-sponsors. And it's the bill from the House, um, not from the Senate, so... Okay. I guess I must be on the wrong page because I'm not seeing any of those... Uh people I'm online, but I'll look it up later. Bill. But that's quite yeah. a few co-sponsors then. Well, you know, it, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 out of 400. Okay, it's a fair amount. And, yeah. So. Okay. Well, we'll see yeah. what happens. We'll keep following up on it for sure. And, um, you know, I see, I don't know if this is Bob's hand from last time, I'm just going to open, and maybe he just never took it down, so it's still up. I'm just going to open his mic for a minute. And by the way, everybody on the line, if you want to be a part of the show and ask Elena a question, just click 1 on your keypad for all those who are listening through your phone. And if you're listening online through the Internet and you'd like to call in and be a part of the show, uh, just dial in 347 Nine one seven zero, and then click one on your keypad. Uh, it raises your hand. But anyway, I'm just going to check. Hey, Bob, uh, did you want to ask a question, or was that just uh, was your hand still up? Actually, I've got some more information to add on the veteran oh, bill. The ACOEM, which is the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine is also opposed to it. I've been working with their legislative affairs office. The bill is considered dead in committee. 
it was proposed to be wrapped into the highway funding bill as an amendment, but with everything else that happened on that bill, everybody's had higher priorities looking at what's going on with that. Elaine yeah, really. was correct. The bill was proposed by the congressman as the result of a single constituent that reached out to them. Um, there are some other issues. The One of the biggest ones is, is that this problem only applies to veterans who are owner-operators. Company drivers, the company has to provide and pay for the DOT physical. And, in fact, one state, California, that's in state law, so that it's a non-issue for a veteran that, that's a company driver. The other issue is should the VA even be providing DOT physicals? They don't provide FAA flight physicals for pilots, nor do they provide U.S. Coast Guard fitness for duty physicals for master mariners. It turns out that DOT doctors, when doing a normal wellness check or physical exam, would process the paperwork for veterans who are also drivers as a courtesy. Well, it uh, looks like, uh, Elaine, you hit that one right on the head uh, about yeah. one lone you constituent. <laughs> yep. But that, but there's one thing I'd like to um, add, that, that not all companies pay for the driver physicals. Um, perhaps California has that as a state law, but there are a lot of small trucking companies that don't pay for their um, drivers. The driver has to pay his own exam. So it's not just owner-operators that have to pay for their exams. Some of the big companies do pay for the exams, but some of the smaller companies don't. But, Bob, are you saying that with this bill it would only apply to owner-operators? Well, again, the issue or problem is really for owner-operators. And, again, as Elaine pointed out, many smaller companies don't pay for employee drivers' physicals. But the majority of company drivers, the company pays for the physical, and in fact, the company specifies where you have to go to get the physical. So it's really an owner-operator problem. You know, practically, and again, there are a lot of small companies that don't, but the majority of the larger carriers both pay for the physical and tell you where you have to get it done. Right, and, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, are in that boat, too. So, uh, well... Uh, well, again, in, in, work, in working on this one, it really turns out that it was just sort of a courtesy practice of many Veterans Affairs doctors to go ahead and process the DOT paperwork. Um, and whether or not doing a DOT physical is considered medically necessary care is one of the things that gets into. Nobody's insurance pays for your DOT physical. Why should veterans' health benefits pay for the additional cost of a DOT physical? Right. Well, this really opened up a can of worms in so many different areas. And um, I'm just be interested. But you say it's dead in committee right now, right? I, I don't expect it to move. 
I don't well, the last, the last update from a, the ACOM Legislative Affairs Office, which was tracking it, was their feeling was it was dead in committee, but it had been planned to be wrapped up as an amendment into the highway funding bill, and no one well, had a chance happen. to follow up at that. Right. Yeah, I well, didn't know did. that part, Bob. That's the first I've heard that it was going to be wrapped up in the highway funding bill. But we're we're really, really happy that the highway funding bill is now taking care of for a couple of years at least. It's been a mess trying to get highway funding one year to the next to the next and um, not having any increase, even though the costs of are going up, there's no increase to the budget, and it's just been a mess. So it's really good to well, see this. This one was actually a 10-year bill, I think, they passed. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, no more patches. Yeah, exactly. And, we were, and I just want to announce this. Bob, I don't know if you realized it either, um, or Elaine, we had a big campaign about the denim amendment, Alan made a video, and a couple other drivers made videos, and we had postings all over to call your congressman and um, tell them no on the denim amendment. And just to here, let me um, see, you know, if I could just tell everybody who wasn't familiar. I mean, we blasted it for about two weeks straight. Um, the denim amendment um, was brought to the uh, the house. And supposedly this amendment was supposed to clarify congressional intent uh, of the 1994 Federal Transportation Act governing movement of the country's freight, and it was offered by Jeff Denham, a Republican in California. Anyway, um, there's a whole article on Ask the Trucker explaining uh, what this amendment and kind of like the little, you know, sneaky stuff that goes on in some of the things – but anyway, bottom line is it failed, so everybody was very happy about that. Well, not everybody, I mean drivers were, because the Denim Amendment would have uh, more directly spelled out uh, states cannot regulate truckers who fall under federal hours of service. However, opponents of the amendment, like us, um, said it could have derailed efforts by unions and other trucker advocacy groups to reform things like driver pay and excessive detention time. And that was really the part of that amendment. Um, OIDA was against it. Um, a lot of people were really jumped on board and, and really made a big thrust. So that part of the uh, that part of the transportation bill, that amendment, didn't make it in. I want to just make, mention that, oh, along with a whole list I have here that I was going to go over if we had time later on in the show. But, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Elaine. Um, that's a big relief every uh, every six months or year, whatever it is, having to go through that. I'm sure they're all relieved about it. Was there anything in that bill that you were happy to see, Elaine? You know, I have not gone through the whole bill. It's pretty thick, so I, ha- I don't... Um, I don't really okay. know, but I'm happy I didn't know if it was something medical. I mean, I read the highlights from Overdrive and CCJ and The Hill, and even um, the Fast Lane has a, an article out on it. So, But uh, besides the CSA hiring standards and, of course, the truck weight, and uh, which didn't go through and all that, 
Um, it, really, a lot of a lot of good things uh, out of that transportation bill. We'll give them kudos for being able to come together on all that. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then um, I thought we could just get into a bit of review, Elaine, on the driver diabetes exemption program um, that we had a show on not too long ago, and see um, if what's going on with that. And uh, so we'll be back in right after this. Heads up, truckers. Are you looking for deals on trucks, trailers, parts, or equipment? Or maybe you need to sell something truck-related. Well, there's a great spot on the web where truckers deal with other truckers. No middlemen involved. That's why we call it TruckerToTrucker.com. There's no charge at all for looking. And if you want to place an ad for what you're selling, it's just $19.95. And it runs till it sells. So whether you're buying or selling, it's time to log on and take a look. TruckerToTrucker.com. Check it out. That's TruckerToTrucker.com. Hey everybody, Alan Smith here, and I want to tell you about TruckerLawyers.com. TruckerLawyers.com helps drivers with their legal needs, and they specialize in workers' compensation, trucking accidents, employment law, and other areas. TruckerLawyers.com arms you with important information regarding workers' compensation and your legal rights, and they are also available to help you find assistance for additional legal issues. This includes determining how to get you the best benefits possible for your situation. The website TruckerLawyers.com is a resource where you can learn more about your legal rights as a driver. Feel free to continue the social media conversation by liking them on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash TruckerLawyers and follow them on Twitter as at TruckerLawyers. Call them to talk through your questions at 1-800-736-5503. Okay, we're back, everyone. Um, FMCSA, Health Updates for CDL Drivers. Uh, We have with us is our special guest tonight, Elaine Papp of healthandsafetyworks.net. And before we go on, um, uh, Elaine, tell everybody a little bit about about your your new uh, website. Um, How's that going? What do you do? And and just just give us Um, an update on that. (laughs) I started a company called Health and Safety Works. And what I'm doing is occupational safety and health um, consulting or OSHA things as well as Department of Transportation Federal Motor Carrier consultation. And, you know, I I mostly, I haven't done much anything in OSHA, but I'm doing um, here and there things with, uh, I've been working with Bob Stanton some, I've been working with Bob Perry some, doing things with uh different folks. I've had some people contact me um, and talk to me about working with them, and I think they're setting up urgent care centers at different truck stops and so forth. So I'm having some fun with it, but I am retired, and so I'm trying to just work a part-time. I'm not real, like, pushing it really hard, but I am having a good time with it, and I'm available to... Um, do a lots of different kinds of things. I can help with driver wellness programs, which is one of my passions. I've been involved in wellness for a long time. 
Um, and I can do, you know, some help with interpreting FMCSA rules and keeping up with what's going on with FMCSA. And I worked for OSHA for 13 years, so I know a lot about the OSHA regs and can give some consultation with working with OSHA, too. So that's basically what I'm doing. And what do they say? If you if you uh, love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, and it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. I would love it if I had a little bit more driver wellness stuff to do. So just right. before we get into the diabetes uh, thing, I want to tell you that last night I went to my nursing association meeting, and the person who was um, – the speaker was a nutritionist who specializes, and she's a diabetic educator as well, and she works for Giant Foods. Mm-hmm. And Giant Foods is starting to put nutritionists in different stores. And if you want to meet with that nutritionist, you set up an appointment time, and it costs $25 for an hour of her time. Wow, and then they give you... $25 in store credit. Wow. So it's basically you're seeing her for free. And she knows an awfully lot, I mean an awfully lot, her her uh, talk last night was about diabetes. And she was just absolutely excellent. So I'm hoping that as we talk a little bit about what's going on with the agency's rulemaking, I might just matter the some of her thoughts into our discussion. So. Oh sure, oh yeah, that'd be great, and um, and that's called Giant Foods is doing that. Giant, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, uh, where are they located? I don't, I don't think we have them down here in Florida. Oh, I don't know. I, I okay. don't know. I'd have to look it up. I All know right, that I they're will. here. They're here in Maryland and Virginia. Um, I don't. I know they're nationwide, but I don't know where they are. Right, right. Yeah, okay. you have Piggly Wiggly and stuff like that, right? Yeah, we have Pub- Publix is our big one down here. I don't know uh, where else they're at. But um, Winn-Dixie, Publix, um, what else? Those are probably the big two. Um, I can't think. Of course, Walmart, you know, they they have all the food stuffs, and drivers love going to Walmart because they have parking. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, but uh okay so um let's uh let's get into this FMCSA proposes to do away with the driver diabetes exemption program and again uh we had a program it's in the archives on this not too long ago and uh you and Dr. Rosarian were on that program and I know you were both uh not so much opposed to the exemption however, the way it was uh, written, correct? Yeah, well, the, it's not going to be an exemption. They, they, we have an exemption program now. Um, the rule, the current rule says you may not operate a commercial motor vehicle if you have diabetes treated by insulin. So no one who takes insulin is allowed to operate a commercial motor vehicle. The agency has an exemption program that they call the Diabetic Exemption Program, Mm -hmm. and drivers can apply for an exemption to the rule, and the exemption to the rule 
gives you um, two years. But part of the requirements for that exemption is that you have to have a medical exam every year. So, and it takes a little while to be able to get the exemption because you have to get a lot of documentation from your ophthalmologist or optometrist. You have to get information from your treating clinician. You have a big form you have to fill out and send in and so forth. So it takes a little while. Right. Um, what the agency wants to do, because they believe that there are a lot of people who have um, diabetes and take insulin. I've got the hiccups. It's really horrible. <laughs> um, but they believe that, oh, my little dog is hearing something outside. Anyhow, um, the agency believes that there are a lot of drivers who are driving illegally, basically, that they're on insulin and they just tell, don't, don't tell anybody and that they're driving. And so what they want to do is have a better control over who drives and they want to take away and change the actual rule mm-hmm. so that the rule wouldn't say anymore that you can't drive if, if you're taking insulin. So they would change the rule and the rule would say you can operate a commercial motor vehicle um, and then it would have certain caveats in it. And they put out a notice of proposed rulemaking, and that's when Dr. Rosarian and I were on the show with you because we made comments, both us individually made comments to the docket about the National Registry, about the diabetes rulemaking, the proposed rule. The agency was proposing that you didn't have to do um, glucose monitoring, you didn't have to check your blood sugar before you got into the cab of the truck. Um, you didn't have to carry, it wouldn't be a requirement to carry um, instant glucose or, or orange juice with you in case you had a hypoglycemic event. Um, so there were all these things that I think are really important. Um, and not only that, but the Diabetes Association and most endocrinologists and so forth, they all Say you have to test your blood sugar, you have to, you know, carry instant glucose or orange juice or something that's going to give you a quick uh, sugar fix for hypoglycemic events. Uh, hypoglycemics are low blood pressure, and that happens a lot with insulin. So, right. Um, so it's ironic, don't you think, that if they were going to do away with the exemptions, that they would actually, I would think, make more rules to compensate for that and instead it, oh, it's almost like they got more lenient besides not needing to file for an exemption yeah it was um it was like going from all to nothing almost right. nothing and what they're saying is that it, it would be up to the treating clinician to tell the driver what he needs to do and that the agency doesn't need to get into it if the treating clinician tells them to carry instant glucose, then they should carry instant glucose. If the um, treating clinician tells them that they have to check their blood sugar, then they should check their blood sugar. Um, but you and I know for sure that people don't comply with their right. physicians. That's one of the major right. problems that they have is people just don't follow the doctor's orders. And right. so... 
it's pretty important from my perspective to have that extra impetus. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I have the That's okay. I had them the other day, and uh, uh, someone told me, hold your breath, and sure enough, it worked. So, uh, if, if you can't get rid of them, we might have. I might just have to go on talking or put a commercial on it so you can hold your breath. <laughs> well, I've tried that a couple times already. It hasn't worked, but we'll see. Anyhow, so um, one of the um, one of the things that I have a problem with is that people do not understand diabetes, and they don't understand how important it is to know what your blood glucose level is to follow your doctor's orders to, you know, people I know who are diabetic uh, sometimes will do like, oh, well, I want that extra piece of pie, so I'm just going to give myself more insulin. Right. My mother used really to do that. really not the way to do things. And insulin's a, a, diabetes is a pretty complicated disease. But one of the things this woman said last night, and she um, was really sharp, um, very attractive, exercises, runs marathons, does all sorts of things, and she's insulin-dependent diabetic, and she's been um, a diabetic since she was seven years old. And she just, you would never, ever know in a minute that she had diabetes, ever, not by her lifestyle, not by anything she does. And she was saying that um, diabetes is responsible for nothing, uncontrolled diabetes is responsible for everything. Mm -hmm. So if you have Mm -hmm. diabetes that you're not controlling, then your chances of having cardiac disease, they just skyrocket. Your chances of having a stroke skyrocket. It's just unbelievable all of the things that diabetes affects. It affects your vision. It affects your periphery. You know, you hear a lot of people losing body parts limbs and stuff for amputation because of diabetes. And um, it's very easy to understand, but you need to, you know, follow the directions. Carbohydrates, half of your plate should be carbohydrates, and the other half of your plate should be colorful, meaning it should be fruits and vegetables and colorful things. Right, the so, greens. A um, lot of greens. I know. I've heard so many people um, that greens, eating just bowls and bowls of uh, whether they're cooked or salads, and they have have uh, brought their um, sugar way down. Of course, in the meantime, while they're doing that, they're also reducing their intake of um, you know starches and carbohydrates and and other things. So you know, it's it's a kind of like a a synergy going on there, but uh, greens are awesome for for everything. I'm a big pro green person myself. Yeah. So, um, and so, and you yeah. know, if anybody's listening with diabetes tonight, um, I I can tell by the emails we get, Elaine, they really don't understand the seriousness. Just like you just spoke about about your 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 limbs and your um, you know, the, what can happen if you don't take care of it? I think if people understood that more, it, it would be more of an alert. Um, can you just, while we were on the topic and you brought it up, can you explain to people why people lose toes and feet and, you know, things like that? 
one once their sugar is not cared for, how does that happen? Well, yeah, let me just kind of go back and explain diabetes sort of real simply. Um, okay. Insulin is the key um, to allow sugar that you eat to go into the cells, and sugar is energy. So almost all foods, like carbohydrates, get turned into sugar. You can eat flour, and it'll be turned into sugar in your body by the way your body breaks it down. So all carbohydrates equal sugar. Sugar equals energy, and that's what the cells need. That's their food. So the cell membrane won't let the sugar into it unless you have insulin, which is the key that unlocks the cell membrane so that the sugar can get into the cell. So if the sugar can't get into the cell, it has to deposit in all these different places. And usually, you know, it goes down, so your feet and so forth are usually more affected than your hands. Um, And it just deposits. And all this sugar is deposited in all of these places, and your circulation is impacted. And you, your cells can't operate properly. And if you are not on insulin, what happens if you overeat? I mean, the reason we're having such a diabetes epidemic is because we're having an obesity epidemic. So the more food you eat and the more carbohydrates you eat, which, of course, we all love, um, mm-hmm. the more your pancreas is the organ in the body that makes the insulin. So you eat, and the stomach tells the body, mm, I've got this much you know, sugar coming in, and so the pancreas has to pump out insulin. Well, you know, day after day after day of expecting that pancreas to be on a marathon, it gets tired and it's just not able to pump out enough insulin to handle everything after a while. And then sometimes it just gets worn out completely and all the cells in the pancreas that make insulin stop producing because they're just sort of too tired. They're dead tired from having to constantly, constantly give insulin to process the sugar. And wow. so when you don't have the insulin processing the sugar, then the sugar is free-flowing and it goes into your bloodstream. And that's why you have elevated blood sugar, they call it, because it's just floating mm-hmm. around, doesn't have any place to go, can't get into the cells to feed them. This is why you're going to be really tired, even though you have all this food. And a lot of times when we're tired, when we're fatigued, the brain will say, I am really tired. I need some energy. Eat some food. It'll give me energy. They so get into this cycle. And um, when you get to the point where you're not managing your diabetes, then the sugar floating around causes all sorts of havoc, deposits in your eyes, and causes you to get so blind, deposits in your feet, causes you to have amputations just gets interfering. It's just all the sugar is just sitting there where it's not supposed to be, and it causes your tissues to rot. Right. Basically. I mean, that's real, real basic. But, that, you know, if you were talking to an endocrinologist, he probably would roll his eyes at what I said because there's a whole lot of complicated 
you know, body chemistry things that go on, but basically that's what happens. The sugar just floats right. around, gets deposited everywhere it's not supposed to be, and then causes those tissues to rot because there's so much sugar sticking there. So and, it's and pretty like, serious. It causes lots of lots It of is. It is serious, and um, I just don't think people understand how serious it is. It's very scary. And, um, right. you know, I, I feel bad. I mean, because... I find if pe- once people do understand the seriousness of it, they they really do take that step. It's it's just getting them to be more aware, and and you know I don't know how else to do that. But um, anyway, I'm glad. Uh, thanks for sharing that. But anyway, so um, where are we now with this? Um, well, we with, aren't going to be anywhere. This notice of proposed rulemaking. Yeah, the a notice of proposed rulemaking goes out. And uh, on any rule, on this one it was diabetes, and they get comments, public comments. And I wrote an awfully lot of public comments. So mm-hmm. what they have to do as the agency is they have to look and read of each of the public comments. And then they get their team together and they talk. On the team there's an economist and there's a, a lawyer and there are people from the medical program's office, and there are people from enforcement. Can we enforce this? How do we enforce it? You know, that type of thing. And there's a group of people that serve on this team, and they look at all of the comments that came up, and then they discuss them, and they decide, well, this comment makes sense. Maybe we should do this. Um, This one doesn't make sense, da-da-da-da-da. And then they have to write a final rule. And when they write the final rule, they end up, um, addressing all of the comments. They have to address in writing all the comments. They'll say, you know, Elaine Tapp from Health and Safety Works said blah, 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 blah. We agree with Elaine, and therefore we're going to do this, and this is how the agency, or we don't agree with Elaine, and what we think is this, and this is why we think that, and so we're not going to do it. So that's uh, what they have to do with the, the rulemaking. And so the public comment period ended, I believe it was June, and now they're reviewing the comments, and then they're going to have to go through the cycle of making determinations about all the comments and what they're going to keep and what they're not. And then it has to go through a whole process of going through the agency and then up into the office of the secretary, and then it has to go over to the Office of Management and Budget, which is an arm of the White House, for Mm -hmm. approval because it has to meet the president's agenda. And then all of those groups will have comments that will come back, and then they have to rewrite and change and so forth. So it usually takes about two years. Um, okay. With there, with there being a presidential election, it may actually even take a little longer. Sure. Because a new president, he'll be setting a new agenda, um, and he'll have all new staff. There'll be a new political appointee at the office of, you know, the administrator of the agency is a political appointee. You know, there will be a new secretary of transportation. The whole thing is going to change. So right now, it's just over at FMCSA, and they're working on it, and they're not allowed to talk about the rule while they're working on it. Oh, okay. So there won't be anything that we'll hear until they come out with the final rule. Okay. Um, before we uh, get into a publication scheduled for
for a notice of proposed rulemaking, um, which was supposed to be um, December 11th, 2015. And this is for the plans to uh, gather uh, info when they gathered the info on obstructive sleep apnea, supposedly there was going to be a, a notice of proposed rulemaking this month. Um, but before we get into that, we're just going to take a, a short break here, and uh, and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Alan Smith here from Truth About Trucking Live and AskTheTrucker.com. And I want to tell you about TCRG Consulting. TCRG is a division of Transportation Compliance Resource Group. And with over 30 years of compliance and regulatory training and consulting, they are the company that can help you from the very startup of your new trucking commercial business to keeping your company compliant and up-to-date on the ever-changing federal motor carrier regulations. Their goal is to help their clients to comply with the FMCSRs. TCRG Consulting makes your DOT compliance easy and understandable, and they work hard to prevent interruption of your daily operations. So if you're having trouble with DOT, just think TCRG. Their services include obtaining DOT numbers, obtaining operating authority, new entrant carrier setup and training, driver qualifications, driver drug and alcohol training, maintenance records, CSA carrier reviews and counseling, data queue filings, plus a whole lot more. So for more information, go to their website at tcrgconsulting.com or email them at regguy at comcast.net. You can get a quote or ask an online question. So remember, if you're having trouble with DOT, just think TCRG. TCRG Consulting, information and assistance to help you comply. Check them out, tcrgconsulting.com. Well, welcome back once again, everyone. Uh, tonight's FMCSA Health Updates for CDL Drivers Show. And our guest tonight, once again, is Elaine Pamp from healthandsafetyworks.net. And uh, we're just starting to get into the sleep apnea, which was supposed to have uh, a notice for proposed rulemaking this month. And uh, I don't know, have you heard anything about that, Elaine? I have not, and I sincerely doubt that, there, you know, the agency puts out dates and oftentimes has trouble meeting those dates. So I sincerely doubt that they're going to have anything out in December. Um, they've got some issues going on with the um, form, the medical form. Um, they're having some problems with drop-down menus and so forth for the National Registry, the new form that was due to be used on December 22nd. And so I think with all those things that are going on, um, they're probably not focusing a whole lot on the obstructive sleep apnea. But even if they do, I think this is a really good thing. What mm-hmm. ana- uh, is called an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking and they nickname it ANPRM. And what it is, is the agency basically says, we plan to do a rule on obstructive sleep apnea, but there's lots of questions out there. And so we want to ask the public, what do you think? And then they usually 
they can do it in a couple of different ways, but they usually will ask specific questions. How much does treatment for obstructive sleep apnea cost? How much does testing cost? Are there ways to do testing that is cheaper? Um, what kind of testing should the agency recommend? So they'll ask questions of the public, and it's not a rule. It's a advance notice of proposed rulemaking, just saying we plan to do this at some time down the future, but we need to get some information. And so it's basically soliciting information from the public, which is a really good thing, particularly for drivers who are really opposed to the idea of obstructive sleep apnea rule. And so it gives them an opportunity to to talk about what they think it's all about and why it's expensive and so forth. So right. it gives you a chance to participate in the rulemaking. And I don't think it will come out in December. I'm not sure when it will come out as the ANPRM. But the closer it gets to election of the president, um, the less likely we'll see it in a really soon. Okay. So that the the notice that they did was just to announce that they were going to announce a notice of well, proposed yeah. rulemaking, right? What it was was uh, the Secretary of Transportation um, every month publishes a list of rulemakings that they plan to do and when they plan to do them. And this was on that list, his October list. Okay. It said, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, advance notice of proposed rulemaking agency is planning to publish it December 11th, blah, blah, blah. Now, they still might. I haven't heard anything. It might go out December 11th. And... You know, there's sort of two schools of thought as the administration begins to change. Sometimes the current um, administration will say, let's get everything out as fast as we can while we're still here. And other times they say, well, you know, it's so, this is so early in the game and only a year before the whole thing changes. Let's just not mess with it much. Yeah. So, but in I, any I'm going to... Um... Huh? The only thing they're doing is asking questions for public input. Okay, but but there's nothing that you've heard of that, you know, it, it's just we're going to have to wait and see if it does come out on December 11th, this notice of proposed rulemaking. And if it does, uh, for everybody lis- listening, um, that's a time where you can actually send in your comments and suggestions, correct, Elaine? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. And they should. Yes. The more comments they get, the more the agency will understand the impact on, on people. But the comments, when you when you write a comment, it's not helpful to the agency to say, well, I don't like this rule, or I don't think this right. should be done. What they want is they want substantive information. Like, I went to get a, a test done. I wasn't allowed to... To drive, I lost this much um, in my, you know, six months of driving time while I tried to get in and get the test and so forth, and then it cost me this much, and that type of thing is what they need to know. Um, the impact it has, the burden it places, but there's also lots of new technology that's coming out, which is pretty amazing. They have these 
um, they have these um, home tests now, and it's this cute little device you just put on your wrist, sort of like a Fitbit. You know what Fitbits are? Um, they have this electronic mm-hmm. ability to connect, and uh, if you take it apart, then you lose the electronic connection. Um, mm-hmm. And it can tell you how you're sleeping and when you're awake and what your blood uh, oxygen level is. Because the main problem with obstructive sleep apnea is the blood oxygen level. It just goes way, way down and forces the body to wake you up because you have a blocked airway and you don't even recognize that you awake. But you get awake so many times during the night because you keep getting this blocked airway that you wake up really tired, plus you've had this really low blood oxygenation, so you don't get oxygen to your brain and stuff the way you should, and it really impacts cardiac disease as well as stroke. So it's a serious disease. Um, but, okay. That's a, another topic that um, drivers don't understand, you know, the repercussions of not taking care of that. And I think they got very defensive on it because um, a lot of people thought they were getting picked on uh, because they, you know, if if they were overweight or something, they'd automatically, oh, well, you need sleep apnea. So it created kind of a defensive mechanism in drivers uh, so that it, it kind of, you know, um, it took away from the seriousness of the disease itself because they became so defensive on it, which is really a shame because, I mean, they're right in one sense and they're right in another. Um, You know, they'll say, well, everybody should be tested, not just us, you know, not just the people that are overweight or or something like that, and it's it, you're discriminating, and and therefore with that kind of attitude they they refuse to take it seriously. Um, and but once you do understand that, listen, you're going to feel better if you do have it. One of the main concerns of uh, what I was going to say is you're going to feel better if you do have it and you take care of it. Not that if you have it, you're going to feel better. But that's one of the main concerns is that, um, you know, if you aren't getting enough sleep and drivers don't get a, enough sleep as it is, they're, they're on really tight schedules, and uh, then this could even uh, hurt it further. I'm, I'm just going to – I don't know if um, if Bob has his hand up again or not. Bob, if you, it just, you know, if you don't want to be a part of it, I'm just going to see because you, your hand's up again. Hey, Thank Bob, you. you there? Did you want to get in on this conversation? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear Elaine's opinion. The Secretary's announcement of the ANPRM, it's a joint rulemaking with FMCSA and the Federal Rail Authority for train crews. There's been right. a lot of talk about sleep apnea after the Bronx train derailment. Has she heard anything about why the FAA and pilots aren't being looked at during this rulemaking? Well, yes, because they have very, very different uh, ways of doing things with FAA. Um, FAA has what they call designated medical examiners. They actually um, 
are designated by the FAA, and FAA has a really tight control over the medical examiners. And Which is not unlike the NRCME program. No, no, it's very unlike the NRCME program. Very, very different. Um, well, again, yeah. the FAA does have guidance on how sleep apnea is evaluated, and that's yes, one I of know, the questions that the is, group yeah, I know that they have guidance on how it's evaluated, but the way what the way they handle their medical examiners is those people actually basically work for the FAA. Every single uh, pilot exam is put through a uh, process. It's a computer process where after the medical examiner does his exam, he sends it into this computer, and the computer looks at it and sees if it thinks that it was done correctly, and if they think they there are little things that are flagged on it, then it goes to the, um, the headquarters, and the headquarters medical examiners, they have 300 people that work for the FAA, they look at each, each exam that's been flagged and determine whether it was done right, and if it, they have some questions, then they call the designated medical examiner. So they have a very, very tight, tight, tight control. And they write re uh, guidance documents that don't have to be put through the kind of rulemaking that we do because our medical examiners and so forth are public um, folks and their medical examiners are designated um, medical examiners. So there's a, just, there's a whole lot of differences in it, but rail is very similar. Rail right now doesn't even have a medical program. Yeah, so the question, the question that's being raised, you know, truck drivers are a safety-sensitive position, train crews, are a safety-sensitive position, both under Department of Transportation. Why isn't the safety-sensitive group of pilots and air traffic controllers subject to FAA flight physicals also being looked at under this rulemaking? I'm trying to tell you they have such they have such um, they have such a stricter. Their whole program is so much stricter than what the drivers undergo or the train operators undergo, people would be up in arms if we did things the way FAA did them. They would just well, have on the, on, the, on the point of sleep apnea, the, if a pilot is screened high risk, they're not required to get a test. They're only required to be evaluated by their primary care physician. So, in fact, the sleep apnea guidance for pilots is much less restrictive than for a truck driver, and that's one of well, the issues me, that's being brought up. Actually, Bob, the, what I have seen when I was working uh, at FMCSA a year ago, uh, the stuff that I saw from FAA was much stricter than what you're saying. So I don't know. Well, but, they went through a political, uh, at the time the sleep yeah, apnea yeah, and trucking bill that, went through, they changed their policies. Well, they got well, into trouble with the FA with uh, Congress had a uh, fit about it. So, but anyhow, they have a very different system. That's why they're not included in this because this is just for the type of system that we have and the type of system that uh, Federal Rail is trying to develop. Well, I just want to say something about that, Bob. Um, think about this. The, the job, the lifestyle of the drivers, so many are overweight, and that's like the number one thing, red flag, that hits drivers for sleep apnea. But think about it. How many overweight pilots have you ever seen? 
I've never seen okay, one. Okay, let's go. Let's step back a second. The actual studies have found that while BMI is a good indicator, using BMI alone misses more than 30% of people with sleep apnea. So you can't, you know, 30% in, in a couple of different studies, 30% of the people tested positive for sleep apnea had body mass indexes below 30. Right. So that's a, it's, a, it's a myth that, yes, obesity is a risk factor, but the, the, the point I'm trying to make is one of the problems everyone has is developing consistent treatment. Better rules. Bob, we lost Hello? you. Kind of going in and out. So, I think we um, lost Bob. Yeah, let me just talk about what he's saying. Question with, so, with all three agencies at once. I, okay. You'd have to ask the agencies that. I gave you my um, understanding yeah. of it because their system is so drastically different <laughs> than yeah. ours. If you want to know the answer, you have to write to uh, the secretary. Um, but I do have to say that BMI alone is not what FMCSA does anyhow. They no, they're mm-hmm. not supposed to do BMI alone. Uh, they usually relate Snoring, mm. history, BMI, neck circumference, and the problem is trying to figure out what BMI level. There have been studies that have been done that have shown that drivers, are not, well, it was drivers in this case, um, there was a medical examiner who got some money to do some studies, and he sent everybody who had a BMI of, I think it was 35 maybe, maybe it was higher than that, um, Who was the lead author? I might know the number. I couldn't tell you right now. I'd have to look it up. Um, he went. He sent them for studies. Might have been forty, but um, and everybody that he sent had sleep apnea. He used the BMI and he used a couple of other things. So there. Yes. Actually, if it's Traeger's study, they used all the criteria in the no, Joint Task Force recommendation. No, it was not Stephen Tregear. It was okay. another person. Was another medical examiner who had people come into his office. Stephen Tregear is not a medical examiner; he is a PhD researcher. Right. But um, anyhow, I'm just telling you that this study was done. It was um, the it was a small study, but he found that everybody who had at this level had a BMI of this level had obstructive sleep apnea. There's a relationship, as you well know, because of the pressure that's put on the yep. airway. And there's also a relationship to age. Now, Johns Hopkins did a study in 2008 of, I don't know, 40,000 people or something like that. It was a huge retrospective study that they did. And they found that um, people of all different sizes, but the problem was if it's untreated, then people had a 40% chance of having a risk, 40% higher chance of having a risk of stroke. So... 40% 40% higher risk of stroke if you have untreated sleep apnea. And it's not just a matter of, you know, is this an unfair thing to do to drivers? It's what do you want to do for your own health? I mean, this is an important, um, serious disease that's going to cause a problem. And what people in this country do not understand is the relationship of obesity to so many diseases. 
right. diabetes, heart disease, stroke, um, even cancers are related um, to the amount of fat you eat and so forth, uh, colon cancer. So there are a lot of serious mm-hmm. things. It isn't people picking on you because you're fat. It's because having the extra weight causes a problem. I'll guarantee you that most people that you talk to who are overweight have knee problems and back problems. Wait, you know, you're, preaching to the, you're preaching to the converted. I'm trying to push that more people with BMIs below 30 should be screened and tested. Well, I think that's true, too. But, you know, like if I'm carrying, if I weigh 120 pounds, I'm normal weight. So if I am 240 pounds, then what I am doing is I'm putting another person, 120 pounds, on top of my shoulders. Now, if I told you, Bob, you have to carry me on top of your shoulders 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you'd have a fit. Nobody wants to carry another person on their shoulders like that. But that's what we do when we get overweight and when we get really overweight and we're and then our knees and our ankles and our backs and can't carry that weight. They were not made to carry weight like that. And so we're going to have ankle problems and knee problems. And then people have this attitude about their health that says, well, this happened to me. It just happened to me. They don't want to take responsibility for why this happened. And like this woman last night talking about diabetes, she said diabetes is a self-management disease. You have to learn how to manage yourself. So it's all a self-management disease, and people want their doctors to take care of them. They want their doctors to give them medicine, but they don't want to take the responsibility for changing lifestyle. That's that's right. And that's what a lot of things, Elaine. Yeah, I mean, a whole lot. Yeah, well, this has been a great show, and I wish we had more time. I've only got about three minutes. Anybody have a last words to say before we close it out? Actually, Donna, I'd love, Elaine, just to mention the December 22nd form changes because there is a movement on request FMCSA to postpone that. Yeah. Okay, um, Elaine, what's up with that? Well, there's a – when the – the medical certification integration rule, which we call National Registry 2, was published, I think it was April, uh, is when it came out, um, or June, in the spring. I don't have an exact date in my head, but uh, it proposed a new medical examiner's form. It wasn't a proposed, it had been proposed as a notice a while back, got public comment, and it came out with the final form. And the final form, as I mentioned earlier, I don't know, Bob, I guess you didn't, maybe didn't hear me, but I said that they've been having some problems with getting that form done, like having trouble with getting the drop-down menu and some of the electronic stuff done. And so it was supposed to be that all medical examiners had to start using this new form on the 22nd of December. But ACOM and OIDA and I don't know who else, Bob, is ATA or... Uh, that's what's going on is many other groups are are either in the process of or or are going to file either petitions or letters to the administrator asking that that December 22nd deadline be postponed. Right. 
And I would suspect that the agency will probably do it because it's very difficult. A lot of uh, physicians who are particularly small uh, companies and so forth, small uh, practices, little offices and all, they just have their own little electronic system. They don't have a big system like Concentra does and so forth. So they may have a lot of trouble getting that form programmed into their electronic um, medical file system. Donna, just a, just a suggestion, you might want to go and look at the sample form, but there's a lot of new information drivers will need to be prepared to provide. Uh, Elaine, correct me if I'm wrong, but they want a lifetime medical history. So no, having no, the no. Date no, of no, no. I'll correct you because that's not at all what they mean. Okay, good. Thank you. What they have meant was... You know, um, they ha they used to say, have you had a problem with this in the last five years? That was what was on the form. And people would say no. But they would say no because they, they have had um, cancer and so forth, but they they haven't had it in the last five years, so they say no. Or they have had... Um, they have blood pressure, and they are on a medication. And no, I haven't had anything in the last five years because they haven't been treated or in the last five years, whatever. So the medical examiners, there was a group of medical examiners that got together and made the form. They said, we want to do this like every other medical office in the world does. When you do a medical history on somebody, in an office, you walk in, they ask you, have you ever had this, 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 and this? So that's what they're asking. Have you ever had this, 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 and this? Just like you would do if you go into any other medical office. And what they have tried to do is take the form and make it more like a form that you do on a regular physical when you go into a doctor's office. They've the same, the, the flow of it and everything else. There are lots of questions that they used to have on it that was, um, and I don't have the two forms in front of me to compare them, but they would say, have you ever had asthma, this, that, that, and they'd have it all in the same line. And somebody would say yes. Well, you didn't know from that checking the yes which one of those things they had. So they broke out a lot of those things that were bunched together into individual things. It's not a whole lot different than the what they call the old form, the one they're currently using. Um, it is not really that much different. If you look at the document that was sent out to the um, medical examiners on the National Registry, they have yellow highlighted all the things that have changed. They have changed some things like instead of saying, I'm just going to make this up, but instead of saying, driver signature of driver they've changed it to driver's signature um they've changed the place where they put the date they've changed the place where they don't ask for social security number anymore you know so there's a lot of administrative things like that, that they've changed but i i know that oida is saying that there are all these 32 pages and so forth well that's not the form there are lots of pages but that's telling instructions on how to complete the form and the form itself doesn't have a whole lot of questions that drivers wouldn't already know about. So have you ever in your lifetime had this, 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 and this? You know, 
yeah. I mean, I know. You don't have to be prepared. You know you're in your head whether you've ever had cancer or whether you've ever had asthma or, you know, whether you've ever had surgery, that type of stuff. Okay, well, we have officially run over, so <laughs> what's going to happen is the recording is going to end kind of um, the archive. In the middle of my sentence. Well, yeah, So, but that's okay. You know, I didn't want to – we were on a roll, and for those listening uh, tonight, I didn't want to end it because, you know, they get to enjoy the um, the information. But uh, uh, I did that uh, help you, Bob? Did that answer your question? Oh, I think we lost Bob. Yeah, I think so. Anyhow, I really thank you for the opportunity to be with you again. I love chatting. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Elaine. Like I said, we always enjoy all your information, and everybody else always enjoys it too because we get such wonderful feedback. And, um, you know, it. Again, Elaine Papp from Health and Safety Works. She's our guest tonight talking about our updates from CDL Health Driver, uh, FMCSA regulatory updates. I I hope everybody has uh, enjoyed the show tonight. I know I did, and I always love doing them. So um, until next time, everybody, uh, our next show will be Saturday uh, with Alan. And uh, until next time, uh, have a wonderful rest of the week. You've been listening to Ask the Trucker Live with Alan Smith. On behalf of Alan and Donna Smith, AskTheTrucker.com, TruckingSocialMedia.com, NorthAmericanTruckingAlerts.com, Blog Talk Radio, and Ask the Trucker Live. I'm J. Michael Collins. Until next time, drive safe and thanks for listening.